We're continuing this uh, chapter about monastic life. Uh, then this next section called Visiting Monks uh, and the sections following it, they might seem a little bit tangential to our, our life here at Amravati and um, uh, talking more about sort of systems and structures in Thailand, but it also includes a lot of the um, accounts of uh, Ajahn Chah's early disciples and so um, the uh, say description of the, the training and the practice, Numpo's teaching, so uh, I thought I would uh, include it uh, regardless, um, so that uh, it sort of forms a, a picture or gives us a sense for um, the environment and the teaching uh, that uh, Numpo Chah sustained and uh, uh, the value of that. So this section is called Visiting Monks. More and more monks, ordained, ordained at other monasteries, arrived at Wat Bapong asking permission to join its Sangha, either for a temporary period or for long-term training. Many of these monks were unfamiliar with life in a forest monastery, and few had received much instruction in the Vinaya. Although Lumpur was willing to take on monks ordained elsewhere, he was also aware of the challenges that integrating them into the community involved, especially the more senior amongst them. If visiting monks were allowed to take their place in the hierarchy according to seniority, then the Wadwapong system, in which the more senior monks were expected to act as role models for the younger monks, would be compromised. Young monks and novices might start to lose their respect for seniors, who were obviously unfamiliar with the training. So that um, so within the, uh, uh, the say the village or the town monasteries, the standard of Vinaya discipline is is a, a bit different, so particularly things like using money. Uh, so it would be quite customary uh, to, uh, for, for uh, the uh, monks from town monasteries, village monasteries, to be using money as a, very much a matter of course, and that was a, always a standard that Lumpur Cha uh, had right from the very beginning. Absolutely no way should any uh, of the monks uh, own or control money, and so that uh, that was one particular issue, and then other things like uh, digging the ground or, or um, plucking uh, leaves or, or cutting plants and such like that is strictly forbidden for, for bhikkhus, uh, then it would be quite ordinary. Um, Ajahn Shah, when he was a monk in his local uh, local monastery, planted and uh, was looked after the, um, the coconut trees and did a lot of the planting and, and some gardening in his village monastery. So he was there for about seven years, seven or eight years as a monk. So when that monastery was given to him as a branch, um, and he was living there, that was in the rains retreat of 1979, um, he, uh, he said he couldn't eat any of the coconuts grown in that monastery because he planted the trees. <laughs> so it's, like, it's not appropriate. I, I, I dug the ground and planted those things, so it's not appropriate for me to, to eat the coconuts. Longpo's answer to this problem was to establish a number of protocols governing the admission of visiting monks, guests and would-be uh, would members into the Watbapong Sangha. Initially, monks, arrived alo monks arriving alone would only be permitted to stay overnight if they had been ordained for more than five years or if they had a covering letter from their preceptor. An initial stay of just three nights would be granted to visitors, although this could be extended at Longpo's discretion. Monks coming from monasteries whose practice of the Vinaya was significantly different from Mopapongs would be designated as visiting monks, quote-unquote, and not considered fully-fledged members of the community. They would sit separately in the dining hall, walk at the end of the line of monks on arms round, irrespective of their seniority, and, most controversially, not be invited to formal meetings of the Sangha. Most of these practices reproduced the way that Dhammayut forest monasteries treated visiting monks from the Mahanikaya sect. However, as the monks being excluded at Wadbapong were of the same sect, the policy led to strong criticism in some quarters, but Lumpur was unmoved by it. He himself had lived as a visiting monk, quote-unquote, for months at a time, and found it helpful in removing pride and conceit. So just to give a little bit of a, a background, um, so that in Thailand there's two main uh, lineages, uh, ordination lineages, the Mahanikai, which is the larger group, that's literally, that's what Mahanikai means, like the large group. And then the Dhammayut uh, 
uh, lineage, Nenikaya, which was started in about the 1860s or 1870s as a reform by the patriarch who was um, out of the royal family. And so that's a, a smaller proportion of the, the Sangha in, uh, in Thailand. And um, so the Dhammi was very much uh, the idea of a reform, uh, a reform group. And the, the majority of the forest monasteries, so uh, Lumpu Man and, uh, and his, his disciples, uh, Ajahn Mahaboa, Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Tate, um, Ajahn Fan, and so forth, they were all from the, from the Damayut. So the, the, uh, it was more uncommon to have Mahanikai monasteries that were forest monasteries, but, um, and the majority of forest monasteries early on were, were Damayut. And so that um, what he's describing here is that uh, Ajahn Chah adopted the standard used in the, the Damayut lineage to um, say to to deal with uh, visiting monks and setting the the standard for them, uh, does that make sense? I don't want to go into a whole Thai Buddhist history lesson, but uh, gives you a bit of a picture. The probationary period was not a comfortable time for monks in question, but it fulfilled a number of useful functions. It provided them with an opportunity to give unhurried consideration to whether or not they wished to make a long-term commitment to the Wat Bapong Sangha. It allowed them to adapt to the way of practice at their own pace, without the pressure of being fully-fledged members of the community. It also provided the opportunity for Lung Po to see whether or not these monks would fit in. He could observe their personalities, how the monks dealt with their loss of status, and how willing they were to take on a much more demanding standard of Vinaya practice. Furthermore, Lumpur was conscious that if monks who ordained elsewhere, with next to no period of preparation, could join the Wapapong Sangha too easily, then it would undermine the system of training that he had developed, i.e. that people had to, to wait for quite a few months uh, before uh, entering into the, the, the Sangha Wapapong. More people would seek to bypass the initial training as a postulant and novice by arriving at the monastery after having been ordained elsewhere. And that, that did actually occur a few times, uh, um, I think, uh, more among Westerners than, uh, uh, than uh, Thai ap- uh, aspirants that, uh, having been told they'd have to wait for so many, uh, uh, so many months as, a, as an Anagarika and then as a Samanera, they sort of went off to, to Bangkok, got a quickie ordination in Bangkok, and then came back and said, I'm a bhikkhu now. <laughs> and so um, that, uh, that did happen a few times with certain, uh, certain Western Sangha members. And... Um, uh, but even so, then this this method of uh, say a probationary period for for visiting monks it's called akanduka is visiting uh, visiting monks uh, that was say created a, a, a something of a buffer system a buffer zone that could be used to um, to help them as as it said here both for them to see whether they were comfortable with fitting in and also for Lumpur to check people out and see whether they were really desirous of training. Ajahn Jan, who was to become one of Lumpur's closest and most trusted disciples, arrived at the beginning of July 1960, after spending a number of years in a village monastery. The contrast was stark, and he felt jolted by a kind of culture shock. Being used to a more convivial atmosphere, he interpreted the reserve of Watbapong monks as coldness and arrogance. This was apparently confirmed on his first full day when clearing the site for a new kuti. None of the monks seemed interested in helping with the work. This is Lumpur Jan speaking. Me? I didn't know about the Vinaya rule forbidding monks from digging the earth, and I just got stuck in. I dug holes, put in the posts, cut down vines to bind things up. It was by no means the only Vinaya rule of which he was ignorant. He'd come to the monastery with a few spare sets of robes and a stock of tinned milk and Ovaltine. He soon discovered that, that at Watbapong, the rule forbidding more than one set of the three robes was strictly observed, and that milk and Ovaltine were considered to be foodstuffs and could only be consumed at the mealtime. There was so much he didn't know. It was a steep learning curve. Again, this is Lumpur Jan speaking. When he tested my faith and respect, and he saw that I had confidence in him, he began to teach me. Lumpur said I had to throw away... Uh, any, uh, any spells, mantric formulas and empowered medallions that I might have collected he would teach me afresh right or wrong, I should just follow him for the time being and then discuss it later I'd been ordained for six years and I'd never meditated the things I'd been doing before, the building work bricklaying, carpentry, cement work he had me put those aside altogether 
He taught me how to practice sitting and walking meditation. He taught me how to rest the breath, establish mindfulness. I was utterly determined to do well, and I did everything he told me. So Lumpur Jan is the, the monk in that portrait hanging over the, um, the little trolley there. So he came and spent a year here, I think 1988 or 89, he spent a, a year here at Amravati. And uh, as he said, he was one of the closest and uh, most sort of dedicated disciples of, uh, of Lumpur Cha. And um, he was, um, uh, <coughs> uh, was, was very um, uh, say energetic and, and sort of, um, uh, engaged and, and uh, very, uh, very much loved and appreciated as a a, a very generous-hearted and, and uh, say community-minded person, and um, also speaking about giving up his uh, spells and mantric formulas and empowered medallions. He could give away his medallions, but he had a lot of tattoos that were sort of his, um, I don't know what you call them, kind of yantras and mantras sort of tattooed all over him. You know, ones for dog bites, ones for attracting you know, young women and for <laughs> protection against illnesses and all kinds of stuff. He was, had a lot of tattoos. And, um, and he would, you know, when people were giving him a foot massage, he would sometimes give the, the bhikkhus a tour of his, his, uh, his mantras and such like, and they'd tell everyone what they were for. I mean, they were kind of, they got faded over the, over the years, but uh, he was still well aware of what they were, had all been for in the first place. Just prior to the beginning of the annual rains retreat, Lumpur told Ajahn Jan that he was ready to be accepted into the Sangha. First, however, most of his belongings would need to be replaced. Monks co commit offences against the Vinaya, both in accepting money and spending it. Any item purchased by a monk is considered impure, quote-unquote, and liable to forfeiture. Most of Ajahn Jan's possessions fell into this category. This is again Ajahn Jan speaking. Lumpur told Ajahn Tiang to go through my requisites and see what was unallowable, so that my sila could be purified in the midst of the Sangha. It turned out that by the end of the inspection, all I had left was one thin lower robe. He was left wearing his bathing cloth. That was, everything else was gone. Everything else I brought myself and was in the breach of the Nisagiya Pachutia training rules. The inspection was very thorough. Even though some of the items had been properly offered by lay people, they were declared impure, incorrect by the vinya, because I'd bought the detergent that I washed them in. So this is a pretty tight standard they had in those days. He had me send everything I relinquished back to my old monastery. Ajahn Tien gave me a new set of robes. They were dark-coloured meditation monk's robes, patched in a number of places. Lumpur said, Don't worry about the requisites. If the sila is pure, they will appear by themselves. After that, he made an announcement to the Sangha and then had me formally de determine the cloth, put the robes on and confess my offences. I didn't know how to confess offences in the forest Sangha way and I had to re repeat the words after him. After the Sangha had accepted me, Lumpur gave a talk. He talked about the various kinds of virtue and the dirt and impurity that the Sangha had, cleansed me, had kindly cleansed me of. He said that I mustn't forget that debt of gratitude, that I must remember it for all of my life. I cried. Ajahn Mahamon remembers the day that he changed his requisites. So again, Ajahn Mahamon, uh, he was a... Um, uh, abbot of a monastery in Bangkok and a uh, very um, uh, sort of well-respected Pali scholar and, um, and teacher. And so when he came to Ajahn Chah and asked to be his disciple, that was really quite a, a major, um, uh, a sort of significant act. He was sort of stepping down from the status of, of, uh, of a high-ranking um, uh, monk in, in the center of Thailand. Because also in those days, Ubon, it's kind of, if you came bottom of your class in, in law school, you could get a job as a lawyer in Ubon. Or you, you just scraped your, your, your ex final exams in medical school, you could get a job in Ubon Hospital. You know? that it's like the bottom of the heap. Like in, in India, it would be like uh, in Bihar or Uttar Pradesh. It's sort of the poorest, most unattractive, the kind of um, end of the options kind of a place. So uh, leaving Bangkok, which is very much the center of power and significance and, um, and prestige, leaving Bangkok to go and uh, put yourself, to step down from your status as a prakru and to kind of a senior uh, teacher, an abbot of a monastery in Bangkok, to go and be an ordinary monk under a, a, a forest monk who had no rank whatsoever in Ubon, it's like uh, extraordinarily significant. It was like a, um, uh, a, a very ma major step. 
So Ajahn Mahamon, um, he, to his credit, he tried not to be anybody special, do anything uh, to sort of um, make himself important. But he was more well-educated and had more experience in the Sangha than most of the other uh, elder monks. And so he, um, uh, when Lumpur Chah's health collapsed, then uh, Ajahn Mahamon was the one that was invited to become a preceptor. And so he took the, uh, all of the, the, the exams and, and made the... Uh, took the necessary steps to qualify as a preceptor. So after Lumpur Chah couldn't do any uh, ordinations anymore, then, uh, then uh, Lumpur Mahamon stepped up and, and did all of that um, for the, um, the, the next 10 years or so. And then uh, after Lumpur Chah had died, then Lumpur Liam got given the, uh, the, um, uh, say the, the authority to do ordinations at Wapapong. And so Lumpur Liam is still the abbot at Wapapong. Uh, Lumpur Mahamon passed away a number of years ago. So this is uh, Ajahn Mahamon speaking. It was my watch that I regretted parting from. It was a really good one. and I'd always used it to keep an eye on the time when I was teaching. As I picked it up in order to formally relinquish it, the thought arose in my mind, if I give this watch up and I end up going back to teaching, where will I ever get another one like it? At that moment, Lumpur spoke up as if he knew what was in my mind. Oh, you've got a watch. Throw it away. It's not a good thing. Take mine. Then he took a travelling alarm clock out of his shoulder bag and gave it to me. That clock is still around. I've kept it with me ever since. Ajahn Bunchu was one of the many stalwarts of Wapapong in later years who began their lives who began their lives as visiting monks. So this is Ajahn Bunchu speaking. When the monks and novices performed the daily chores or there was a work project, it made me very observant. I helped out. I allowed my pride to motivate me. Whatever they can do, however hard it is, so can I. Lumpur watched us a lot, very carefully. When I first arrived, I felt in great awe of him. Really, it was intimidation. In fact, I felt intimidated by everything, from all the rules and observances to the young novices, even the lay people, because many of them had been practicing longer than me, and probably, I thought, knew more than I did. Although I already had six reigns, it seemed as if I hadn't even started to practice. Whatever I did was a mixture of the correct and incorrect, and sometimes I'd embarrass myself, but Lumpur would just let it go. After I'd been there some time, after the evening session in the Dhamma Hall was over, I had the opportunity to go together with some of the other visiting monks and novices to pay our respects to him and to receive teachings. If anyone had a problem in their practice, that was the time, to, that was the time when you could ask him. Sometimes he himself would ask, How is so-and-so, and what about so-and-so? Is everything going well? He'd ask us about how we were getting on. Did we feel hungry in the evenings, eating only one meal a day? Could we endure it? Sometimes he would give us an exhortation. Be very patient. Just keep practicing. You're living with friends. Any task that needs to be done, or any observance that is still faulty or lax, then observe your friends. Practice well. Don't be heedless. Also, this uh, theme has come up a few times in the last uh, 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 couple of readings is um, in terms of uh, people arriving and they're not really being given instruction but just being, uh, say, uh, left to their own devices. And so that was very much a forest monastery standard that, um, that you would be expected to be observant and to watch what's going on and to, to learn by example. And... Uh, uh, Ajahn Tanisaro, who's from a, a, a different lineage, um, when he went to stay with Ajahn Phuong in, uh, in Thailand, he said exactly the same thing, is that uh, he went to go and stay at Ajahn Phuong's monastery and, and he uh, wasn't given any kind of instruction at all. And, uh, and he was sort of kept waiting for the time when the Ajahn was going to sit down and, and uh, sort of tell him what he should and shouldn't be doing. And then he realized, oh, that day isn't going to come. <laughs> I'm just supposed to be, to be observant, to be, to be watching and to, to be learning. And being an, uh, you know, an American and uh, uh, so very forthright in that way, he actually sat down one day and said, you're not telling me anything. You know, you're not telling me what, what I should or shouldn't be doing. And, and Ajahn Fung said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and kind of spelled it out to him. Yeah, you're, the idea is that you, you learn by being observant, by, by watching. And so if I spell everything out to you, and uh, then uh, you won't learn in such a good way. Well, this next section is called Lungta. It's common in Thailand for middle-aged and even elderly men to join the Sangha. 
Some decide to enter a monastery after retirement, some after their children have grown up and left home, some following a divorce, and others, provided they have gained the consent of their wife, while still married. The traditional term for a man who becomes a monk after having lived the householder's life is lungta. Lungtas have had a poor reputation since the time of the Buddha. The archetypal lungta wears his robe untidily, is still stuck in his worldly ways, and is stubborn and difficult to teach. He finds it difficult to deal with the change of status he experiences as a junior member of a community in which some of the monks he must defer to are no older than his children. There's a whole genre of humor, humorous lungta stories, mostly revolving around the theme of greed or old worldly habits asserting themselves. In one typical story, a lungta on arms round comes to a fork in the road. To the left lies a village where he often receives delicious curries, but few sweets. To the right lies a village where he receives wonderful sweets, but few curries. After an agonized period of indecision, he sets off down the curry village road, but soon, swept up by a vision of sweets, changes his mind, retraces his steps, and takes the road to the sweets village. But as soon as he's well upon the sweets village road, he starts to regret uh, foregoing the curries at curry village. He walks back and forth so many times, caught between his conflicting desires, that eventually he realizes that the arms round time has long gone past and that today he will get nothing to eat at all. That might be a, 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 an apocryphal story, a, myth, a, 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 a monastic myth, or it might actually have happened. Who knows? Monks resembling the Lungta caricature have always been easy enough to find in the village temples of rural Isan. However, this has not been the case in the forest monasteries. It takes a lot of courage for an elderly man to commit himself to the ascetic life of a forest monk, and of those who are de determined to do so, only the ones who could prove themselves capable of enduring the rigours of the life and willing to live by the Vinaya and monastic regulations were accepted into the Sangha at Wapapong. For this reason, the quality of the elderly Lungtas at the monastery was high. Amongst their number were to be found some of the most loved and respected members of the Sangha. As a means of gauging their suitability, Lumpur required elderly men to spend long periods of time, first as a postulant and then as a novice, before becoming a monk. During this probationary period, and some elderly men never went beyond the novice status, Lumpur would comfort them when things got tough giving them inspiration and encouraging them not to be depressed by the frailty of their bodies. One elderly novice, sad that he would not be able to become a monk, was uplifted by Lumpur's words to him. This is quoting him here. He said that I had to take responsibility for my practice, but not to push my body too far. It was like an old ox cart, he said, falling apart a little bit more every day, not to worry much, too much about it. He said that by ordaining as a monk is a... So he said that ordaining as a monk is a convention. You don't become a true monk by going through an ordination ceremony, but through practice. He said that lay people and novices could become true monks if they practiced well. He told me stories from the time of the Buddha about lay people who attained stream entry and about one who realized arahatship and then got gored to death by a bull while he was still out searching for some yellow cloth to make a robe. I felt very proud when Lumpur told me these things, and he was kind enough to, to tell me one anecdote that was really inspiring. It concerned a certain monk of high ecclesiastical rank. He was a Pali scholar of the highest level and head monk of a province, but he had so many responsibilities that he disrobed and reordained as a novice. In the hot season, he would disappear into the mountains to meditate, and then, just before the rains retreat, he would return to the monastery and stay with his disciples, giving Dhamma talks and teaching. Lumpur said to me, You can do that as well. Practice sincerely, at the optimum level for your strength and age. Don't look at others. Don't be a fault finder. It doesn't matter what others do. You're an old man now. Don't take any interest in the faults of others. I took Lumpur's teachings to heart. So that, that's uh, uh, very much the case. I think in the forest monasteries, uh, the, uh, yesterday I was talking about Maurice Walsh and his uh, impressive standard of, even though he was 80 years old, he was definitely a Lungta, had a bit of trouble keeping his robes tidy. But he was never late for the morning meditation a single time in the whole three months. Um, and uh, one of the most impressive monks that, that I met was um, uh, when I was uh, very newly ordained. Um, I happened to be down in Bangkok with the, the abbot of Wat Nanachat. Um, I'd only been a bhikkhu for a, a few weeks, three or four weeks. And uh, we were in, in Bangkok um, 
and we met, the, uh, we were staying at Wat Bawaniwait, uh, which is a Damyut monastery, and this old, uh, this old forest monk was there called Lumpo uh, uh, Bunna, and he'd been a, a very wealthy businessman in the, in the northeast, and um, he uh, and had, uh, at the age of uh, 65 or 70, he'd given up his business, left the family, gone into the monastery, and he'd been uh, he'd been a bhikkhu about thirteen reigns, and he still had the same sabong, the same lower robe that he'd uh, he'd gone uh, gone forth as a, a bhikkhu in, and it was like, covered in patches, and the patches had patches, and his his feet um, were like oak. They were, he'd never worn sandals since he had gone into the robes, and he he actually looked kind of like an oak tree. You know, he was just a sort of gnarly old. Uh, this guy, and he was so so happy and so bright. You know, just this. Um, uh, you know, so by that by that time he was, let's see, if he was about he was eight, over eighty probably by then. And um, so it was very impressive. He's someone who had a lot of wealth, a lot of power, a lot of status, and, and was just so delighted to have given the whole lot up, and to be um, to be living as a, a ragged uh, a ragged monk and. Um, it, uh, it was a it was a very wonderful example to me. I was like twenty two years old at that point, just um, newly hatched as a bhikkhu, and uh, it was a really wonderful example just just to meet him. And he he uh, couldn't uh, speak very much English, but Ajahn Babakro was very very skilled in the Thai and, and Northeast dialect, and um, so it was very very inspiring, very kind of marvelous to see that. Um, yeah, the, uh, uh, the the delight in the holy life that even someone who who had a lot of worldly responsibilities and uh, the was the, the kind of e- eagerness to take on the hardship of living in the forest and and uh, he, you know, before he was uh, in robes he certainly had worn shoes all, <laughs> and uh, and fine fine clothes but he he re- he just decided okay I've been very attached to my possessions my status my clothes my money my my property. Uh, okay, well, let's let's take this thing seriously and just not just walked away from it for the ceremony, but also literally had had not worn any any sandals um, for th- for thirteen years. Had, uh, had still got the same robes and and um, uh, and was you know very very committed to living a, a life of great simplicity. Uh, I don't know if Ajahn Jayasaro tells the story. Another of the Lungdas was. Um, um, Called Porsui, and uh, he he used to come to to uh, to stay at Wapananachat. He couldn't speak any English, but he would come and spend a time ar- around the Western monks uh, uh, once in a while. So he uh, a few times when I was living there, he came and stayed with us for a, a week or two. And uh, he was the most sort of sweet and gentle and uh, easygoing character. And I didn't really know why he liked to be around the Westerners because you know, he couldn't speak a word of English. <laughs> But he would just sort of come and spend time there, and then Ajahn Babakro would uh, would chat with him, and and he was very kind of helpful and genial and easy. And then uh, I found out, you know, long after I'd left Thailand, then someone mentioned to me, oh yeah, oh, poor Su- uh, poor Sui was a hitman. He was an assassin before he was a monk, and he'd actually been hired to kill Ajahn Chah. And that uh, <laughs> so that he um, by certain factions in the local area, and that. Um, the the way he'd become a monk was that he was uh, coming as a, a as a, a lay person sitting in on Lungpucha's Dhamma teachings under his under his kutia in the sala and he was sort of uh, working out his attack when he was going to make his hit and so um, whether or, whether or not Ajahn Chah discerned what he was up to is a question that is discussed yeah? whether he he knew or he didn't know but the fact was he kind of got too close to the Dhamma. You heard too many Dhamma talks and hear Lumpo Chah giving too much good advice and then and began to think, well, why do I want to kill this guy? You know, this is for a few hundred baht, you know. Life was very in in northeast Thailand life was very cheap in those days, so that you know, it was not like a um uh, you know, you, you could you could hire a hitman for less money than it would take to buy a water buffalo. To have somebody uh, knocked off. So um anyway he uh, had Heard too many Dhamma teachings and thought, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and then he confessed to Lumpur Chah the reason why he'd been coming you know, over these these uh, weeks and visiting. And uh, and um, uh, so then he asked if he could come and stay in the monastery. And, and he said, I've, I've given up my job, you know.
<laughs> Don't worry, uh, you know, I've, I, I've, uh, I, uh, I've resigned that. But he's, also, I, I had heard that he said, I'm, I'm a bit worried about my, um, my previous employers might be upset with, with what I'm up to living in the monastery. And, and unfortunately, I said, yeah, if you well, don't worry. If you stay close to me, I think you'll be all right. And uh, and so he managed to to stay alive and uh, and lived on. Um, <coughs> I think he ended up with about uh, being, having been a monk about twenty years before he passed away. It was, uh, so it was uh, one of those interesting tales of the northeast. <laughs> You'd never would have guessed. I mean, he was such a sort of easy, friendly, sweet guy. The poor Sui was a hitman. What? Apparently so. So, any questions, thoughts? Anyone here? <laughs> A different agenda. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the next section is called Temporary Monks. Although there are approximately 300,000 monks and novices in robes at any one time, probably less than one in ten of those who enter the monastic order in Thailand remain in it for the rest of their lives. Temporary ordination is the norm rather than the exception. Traditionally, for the three months of the rains retreat, but often for a much shorter period in these busy days. Yet now it's down to about a week or three days. And part of the custom is because it's very much gender-specific. But if a... If a man wants to, to get married to a, a woman, then the first question that the, the, the woman's family will ask is, has he been a monk yet? And so that in order to get the marriage approved, then the, the, the husband-to-be has to spend time in the monastery to be, to be considered marriageable. So men are considered to be far uh, too uncouth and unpolished and uncivilized to uh, be ready for married life if they haven't been through some monastic training. So it used to be at least um, three months or a year that you'd be in a monastery to, to become, to enable you to develop your, your couthness or some degree of, of polish and, uh, and being uh, properly civilized and um, uh, marriageable. But that's, uh, as I said, it's trimmed down to a bit of a token nowadays, so it's sort of three days or, a, or even one day sometimes. Like it's, uh, it's just, okay, done my <laughs> I've done my stint. Um, and so uh, that part of that, that custom of so many people uh, on the male side going into to temporary ordination was because of that expectation of the, uh, the society in terms of marriage. It's a custom that has done much to enrich Thai society over the past millennium, creating deep and lasting links between lay Buddhists and the monastic order. Temporary ordination has prevented the Sangha from being seen as an elite caste and has ensured that few households lack a family member who is, or who has at one time, been a member. The value of the custom to the well-being of society is recognized in the allowance for those employed by the state, including members of the armed forces, to take full paid leave to become a monk for one three-month range retreat period during their career. And as I said, that, uh, that applies to women as well, and also, I, I, I think it's, it's uh, three months every ten years, that they, um, that they have the allowance to join the Sangha. Temporary ordination provides a rite of passage in which young men gain the opportunity to study the Buddha's teachings <coughs> intensively and to learn how to apply them in their daily life before embarking upon a career and marriage. In former times, a young man who had yet to spend time as a monk would be considered unripe, quote-unquote, or immature and find it difficult to make a good marriage. Perhaps the majority of young men who become temporary monks are motivated not so much by concern for their own spiritual welfare as by the belief that it is the right thing for a Buddhist to do at that stage in their life, that they are upholding a long-held family custom, and most importantly, that they are making their parents happy and proud. The belief that taking temporary ordination is the supreme means of expressing the gratitude a son feels towards his parents is deeply embedded in Thai culture. Parents are believed to make much merit if a son becomes a monk. For some monasteries, a steady or seasonal influx of temporary monks can be like a regular infusion of new blood that prevents stagnation. At the same time, it may also disrupt the harmony of an established community. 
teaching and training new monks can be a heavy burden, and the influence of even a small number of young monks who have no real interest in learning, but who are merely seeing out time for the sake of their parents, quote-unquote, can have an adverse effect on the whole monastery. The difficulty in balancing support for a worthy custom and the need to protect the standards of the resident community were reflected on in Lumpur's shifting policy regarding the acceptance of temporary monks at Watpapong. Some years, the rains retreat will be seen. Sorry, some years the rains retreat would see as many as a dozen; other years, almost none. Generally speaking, if one year's intake had been disruptive, he would accept significantly fewer the following year. At Wapapong, the majority of temporary monks were government employees in their middle years, rather than young men. Of these, the most popular with the resident sangha tended to be members of the armed forces. They were used to discipline and physical austerity, tended to be highly motivated and fit in well. Problems tended to occur with the civil servants from a more cosseted background. For them, every day in the forest could be a struggle, and for some, the last day of the retreat seemed to be like fin- seemed like the finishing line after a gruelling marathon run. On the other end of the spectrum were the temporary monks who extended their stay in robes for a few more months or even years beyond their original plan. A few found that they were, a few found what they were looking for at Wabapong and never returned to lay life. So that does be, become uh, an issue. Um, also, um, again, to go to the, to the women's side of things, it's, it is very, very gender-specific in Thailand. So um, whereas for a, a family, like a, they're eager for their son to, be, to go into the monastery and to sort of make merit for the parents, if the daughter says, I want to be a nun, um, the, often the, 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 the better the family, the more uh, sort of educated or prosperous they are, the more the parents are likely to say, absolutely no way, and uh, forbid the woman to go into the monastery. And so it's a very... Um, uh, very slanted um, condition, and so I, I know quite uh, a few women in Thailand who would really have loved to have been nuns for most of their, uh, if not all of their adult life, but the family just said, "No way," and um, so they, they're the, uh, often the ones who never wear makeup, spend all their weekends going to monasteries, <laughs> print a lot of Dhamma books, and uh, yeah, very. Um, very, very regular faces at uh, Dhamma assemblies. And it's, uh, that's often a, a sort of undercover nunhood that you find in, in Thai society. Um, also, uh, it's uh, another significant thing uh, is that, as he mentioned in that last paragraph, is sometimes uh, men who have been sort of encouraged to, to join the monastery for a period of time, and the family, oh, sadhu, 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 they're so happy. And then when they say, okay, I don't want to leave, and the, the family said, no, 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 you've got to leave. And no, I'm not leaving. No, you've got to leave. So there's a whole um, heated exchange or ex- exchanges as the, uh, the, the, the son who they were eager to become, a mon- uh, to become a monk wants to stay in the monastery and doesn't want to, doesn't want to leave again. And so that, um, again, there's, there's a, uh, quite a few uh, Thai men who were f- forced out of the monastery by, the fam- by family pressure, but again, who are... You, you know, you see at many Dhamma events, never got married, <laughs> are, kind of, are um, very uh, active in supporting monasteries, and uh, spend, uh, you know, their, their, real, their heart is really in the practice. But as Lumpur Cha was giving advice to that Lungta novice, uh, as he said, lay people and novices can become true monks if they practice well. So that's sort of, in a way, it's kind of ordination by Dhamma rather than by, by Vinaya, that sense of an inner commitment. And so... You know, that's what the, the society demands, and some people, uh, even though in the West we're much more used to, to sort of doing what we like and, and disregarding what our parents' perceptions might be, and our parents also, you know, they might be thought, okay, well, it's up to you, you know, you make your own choices. In, in Thailand, and I think in many other Asian countries, it's, even if you're well into adulthood, you know, you can 50, 60, 70 years old and still completely obligated to do what the, the family or the, the parents uh, wish you to do. And so that... Um, it's not uncommon to have this sort of undercover monastics in the, in Thai society that just sort of they uh, they find a, a a niche a way of being uh, in the in the world and uh, you know avoiding um, commitments not getting married not having children uh, living simply um, and uh, and basically their, their whole life revolving around their the spiritual training spiritual training and practice. 
So the next section is called Nikaya, and this talks a little bit more about Damayut and Mahanikaya. Most of Lumpuman's great disciples began their monastic life in the larger Mahanikaya order and changed their affiliation to the more rigorous Damayut order to which he belonged after becoming his students. Lumpur was one of a small group of monks, its unofficial leader being Lumpu Tongrat, who acknowledged the generally lax standards of conduct within the Mahanikaya order but decided to try to reform it from within rather than reject it altogether. Lumpuman established a number of protocols regarding the reception of visiting Mahanikaya monks, considered to be lacking in purity with regards to the Vinaya, in his monasteries. They were to be seated separately, for example, and most importantly, were barred from attending formal meetings of the Sangha, such as the fortnightly recitation of the Patimokha. The abbots of Damayut Forest Monasteries conceded that the Vinaya practice of Wapapong was of a high standard, but they felt that it would be disrespectful to the deceased Lumpuman to make an exception to his instructions on their own authority. Thus, in most cases, visiting monks from Wapapong encountered the same restrictions as those who did not take the Vinaya so seriously. Despite being treated with great politeness and being reassured that it was merely a matter of convention, this could rankle. So that word rankle is, uh, means this could irritate or upset or be um, uncomfortable, awkward. One year, Lumpur gave a certain Damayut monk permission to spend the rains retreat at Wat Bapong. At a meeting of the Sangha, he asked the community whether they thought that the monk should be allowed to attend the Patimoka recitation. He silently allowed the tit-for-tat position to emerge. They don't allow us to attend their formal gatherings. Why should we allow them to attend ours? Was the most common response. Having listened to all of his disciples' opinions, Lumpur gave them his own thoughts, so providing a precedent for all future occasions. This is Lumpur Chao speaking. We could do that. We could exclude him. But it would not be Dhamma or Vinaya. It would be acting from opinion, personality view and pride. It wouldn't feel right. Why don't we take the Buddha as our example? We won't hold to this order or that, but to the Dhamma Vinaya. If a monk practices well and keeps the Vinaya, then we let him attend formal meetings, whether he be Dhammayut or Mahanikaya. If he's not a good monk, he has no sense of shame, then whichever order he belongs to, we don't allow him to attend. If we practice like this, then we will be conforming to the Buddha's injunctions. So that's a significant uh, um, inclusion uh, in the in the this biography, and also the uh, he doesn't quote it here, but the, when the uh, uh, when the two um, uh, great teachers, uh, uh, Achan Man as uh, the elder master, and then the young Ajahn Chah was uh, visiting Achan Man um, at his monastery Wat Nong Pu, uh, and he was only there for about three days. There was only a, a three-day encounter between. Um, the the uh, the two of them at the end of those three days, and uh, Ajahn Chah asked uh, uh, Ajahn Man whether he uh, he felt he should uh, change to being a, a Dhammayut monk. He should relinquish his commitment to the Mahanikaya order and reordain as a, a Dhammayut monk. And uh, famously, uh, Lumpuman said to him, "No, they they uh, don't do that. They need good monks in the Mahanikaya also." And so. Uh, Lumpur Chah, with the encouragement of Lumpur Man, uh, stayed in the Mahanikaya order, and so that, um, and then Lumpur Tongrat was also had been a, dis- a disciple of Lumpur Man, and also Lumpur Kinnari was another Mahanikaya monk that Ajahn Chah studied with, who also was a very um, highly uh, admired and respected forest monk, um, and I'm, uh, who, who had also spent time with uh, Lumpur Man, I believe, and that. Um, that they uh, they stayed within the Mahanikaya and tried to say establish a, a good standard, and as it turned out, that has been very much the, the case that uh, Lumpur Cha, not with sort of going out and campaigning or, or scolding other monasteries, or, but just by establishing a good standard um, within Wapapong, then it became uh, influential and uh, spread as a, a natural example around Thailand. So um, it was a. Uh, um, it was a very inspired and wise encouragement of Lumpur Man, uh, and that the the effect has been very positive. And so it's much more of a, a blurry line now. So there's there's more Mahanikaya forest monasteries, and the, the standard is a bit more improved. And then the Dhammayut is much less 
slowly the the forest monasteries and the, their own standards have uh, become kind of more um, more lax in some ways and in, in and in uh, more in the urbanized monasteries. Uh, they still have the standard that when I was a, a, a junior bhikkhu and I stayed at Bawaniwait, which is the main Dhammayut uh, monastery in Bangkok, then uh, you uh, you wouldn't be allowed uh, as a Mahanikaya monk. I wouldn't be allowed to to join in the Patimoka recitation. But um, you would uh, have this little ceremony of what they call, um, uh, say, an- announcing your purities uh, to to um, declare the Parisuddhi uh, in- instead of. Um, of sitting in on the, the ceremony, you just you, you would be acknowledged and you'd be allowed to to stay in the monastery, but you just wouldn't be um, uh, able to sit in on the uh, the ceremony it, itself. So that uh, that standard that Lumpur established, that's still what is sustained uh, today in in Wapapong and, and the branch monasteries. But it does come up with some, there's some awkward and kind of strange circumstances. I remember. We were at the the funeral of uh, Lumpu Tate, who was one of Ajahn Man's um, great disciples, and uh, so <clears throat> this was up in Nongkai Province, and so uh, uh, I, I was uh, over there in Thailand at that time. Uh, Lumpu Sumato was there, and, and he took a whole uh, group of about tw- uh, about fifteen or twenty uh, Sangha members from from Wapananachat up to to Nongkai to be there for the, for the funeral, and. Um, we were. Uh, he was very, very um, warmly welcomed, and then uh, for the on the funeral, he was asked to give one of the um, uh, the main dhamma talks uh, uh, during the, the funeral. And the um, so the, the the order in which you give the talks is a kind of status so <laughs> pecking order. Uh, so the the monk before him in giving the dhamma talks was uh, Lumpoput, who was again a very um, highly respected uh, Dhammayut forest monk and uh, very much uh, uh, say revered, rega- highly regarded as an accomplished teacher. Um, and then Lumpur uh, Sumedha uh, was the monk speaking after him, so he's sort of up there next to Lumpur Put. And, uh, and so given a very you know, high standard of recognition. But when it came to the, to the mealtime, then... Uh, they made sure that that uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha was sitting at the as we were all sitting in, in lines. That Lumpur Sumedha was sitting at the the end of the line, and that the the rest of us Mahanikai monks were, were together. So that then, so that Lumpur Sumedha, you see, if a Mahanikai monk um, receives food, uh, then it's not considered as properly offered. So that if, if a Mahanikai monk um, uh, takes some food and puts it down. Then a, a Dhammayut monk can't just pick it up and serve himself of that food, um, and so that um, which might seem I won't go into all the details, but it's like it's like as if uh, uh, the, the Mahanikai monk is actually a layperson, and so on the one hand he's being held up as a sort of great ajahn you know, next to Gumpur Put to to give Dhamma teachings to this assembly of thousands of people, but at the meal time it's like well you're not really a monk, so you know if you and if you touch this food then it's become unoffered. Um, just like uh, the the meal time here, if, uh, things have been formally offered and received by the bhikkhus. If one of the lay people come sort of uh, comes along and puts something else on the server, or moves a few dishes, oh, it has to be it has to be offered again. Otherwise, we can't help ourselves to it. So the the protocol would would be that if a, a Mahanikai monk just sort of puts some food down, then a Dhammayut monk can't pick it up and serve themselves of it. So it's like well. Is we uh, are we are we uh, admirable monks or are we lay people? <laughs> what are we? <laughs> so it's, it can be very confusing. And similarly, um, the uh, the usual standard for Dhammayut monasteries is that on the alms round you walk in order of reigns, but when you sit down together in the in the sala, then the Mahanikai monks sort of sit at the back of the of the line. So you're in order of reigns on the alms round, but you're in you're in Nikaya at the meal time. So. If you're into reason, it's confusing. <laughs> if you're not attached to reason and logic, then it okay. <laughs> Just tell me where to go. <laughs> so it's one of those uh, uh, dances of uh, religious conventions that we we find ourselves a part of. You know, adopting any any kind of religious convention, you have these sort of hmm, what do I do with this one? Experiences. So any thoughts, questions, reflections on any of that?
Oh, radically, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the, the strange things about the Dhamma, um, uh, <laughs> if you read this, there's a couple of books by a, a, a scholar, um, a Thai scholar who, who is, uh, in, um, lives in America called Kamala Tiavanit, uh, one book called Forest Recollections, another called The Buddha in the Jungle. And she talks about that whole um, uh, period very, very thoroughly. It's very, very interesting historical accounts. So, along with the Dhammayuts were being established by the patriarch who was out of the royal family to, to, to quote-unquote purify the Sangha in Thailand and uh, to create a better standard, he also had the opinion that meditation was dangerous and you shouldn't meditate. So the, the Dhammayut was about keeping the Vinaya strictly and studying, the, uh, studying Pali and studying the scriptures, but meditation was considered um, uh, you know, very dangerous and bad and, and shouldn't be done. It was only, only if you were interested in black magic or, or um, fortune-telling would you, would you meditate. So it was, on the one hand, it was sort of raising the standard, but it was, on the other hand, completely excising meditation from what a good Buddhist monastic should be doing. So um, Ajahn Man was actually run out of of the province of Ubon because he was a meditator. He was from, from Kongchiyam, uh, near, near Puchongkong, uh, on, on the Mekong River, that's where he came from. So he was an, born in Ubon, but he got chased out of Ubon province because he was a meditator. It's like, you know, disreputable monk, you meditate, you know, you get out of town, you, know, you don't belong here. And uh, so, um, and, and in that part of that, um, uh, the ethic of the foundation of Dhammayut, uh, again, this is just sort of my memories of the different accounts I've read, it was, you know, the, the age of the Arahants is over, enlightenment is possible, but it's our duty to maintain the tradition. The way we do that is to study the Pali, learn, you know, learn the scriptures, keep the Vinaya, and keep the tradition alive, um, and, and so that when, when the next Buddha comes along, there'll be uh, people who have created enough good merit to be reborn in the time of that Buddha, and then the, the next age of Arahants will, will be hatched. But this, the, the age of, of enlightenment, and the possibilities of en- enlightenment are, uh, are finished. And so people like Lumpur Man and, uh, and his disciples in Lumpur Cha just said, yeah, rubbish. <laughs> That's ridiculous. The, the Buddha wouldn't teach this if, the, if that was the case. There's nowhere that you you get that qualified by, by the Buddha, but rather, you know, if you practice in this way, then the, these, res, these will be the re- results that are experienced. And so, and sometimes people would actually um, say to, to, um, the, the, they, the, the, to Lumpur Cha that, you know, that, that was clearly their understanding of that, their belief, and that, um, and that if they, um, um, <coughs> that, you know, their aim was just to to make merit. They didn't want to develop insight because that might get in the way of them just making merit and being reborn in the time of the Maitreya. And it's very weird logic that, um, or that they, uh, that they, or there was uh, one one particular version I heard that was really strange was that they didn't want to do vipassana meditation uh, because if they developed insight, if they became a stream enterer, then they would have seven more lifetimes. It would be really hard work. To reach enlightenment, um, you know, in, in uh, during these next seven lifetimes, so much easier just to make merit, have the intention to get reborn in the time of the Maitreya, and then it'd be really easy to hop off the wheel if you're there, if you're there with the next Buddha. Uh, so you don't have to kind of get, do, go through all this work of seven lifetimes of slogging uh, slogging away, dealing with your defilements. But if you just get you, you, you make your shot right and land in, uh, in the right place at the right time and the time of the Maitreya Buddha, then it'll be really easy. You know, people will be popping off the wheel left and right. And so apparently Lumpur's, Lumpur Chao's comment was like, are you a gambler? <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't, sound, that doesn't sound like very good odds to me. You know, like, 
If, uh, if you take my advice, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a very, very long shot. But you feel far better putting your investment into developing as much uh, insight as you possibly can in this lifetime. And don't worry about the dangers of becoming a street, just becoming a stream enterer. Okay. If, that's your, you know, if, that's, if that's what you're worried about, stop worrying. <laughs> so that the... Um, yeah, so there was a particularly... Um, uh, uh, the sort of the forest uh, tradition as came down through uh, Lumpurman, but also uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, who was from the south. So he was he was a forest monk, but his uh, and, but his whole I don't know even if he knew that uh, Lumpurman existed. Um, he uh, he was from the south, and his um, adoption of the forest monastic life pretty much came directly from the suttas, uh, reading the suttas, and he'd. He was a very, very gifted um, from an early age and very inspired by the teachings. Even as a 16-year-old novice, he was invited to be giving three Dhamma talks a, a, a day on the one part, apparently. Like, he had to kind of, as a 16-year-old, he was invited to go and give talks at different monasteries. So he was a kind of hot item in terms of the, the uh, Chaya, Songkla area. Um, and anyway, so when he became a bhikkhu and then went off to, to Bangkok and studied in, in Bangkok for about five years, and he, the more he, he, he studied the scriptures, and, and it was all about go to the forest, meditate, go to the forest, meditate, keep the vinaya, go to the forest, meditate. And so he um, just decided this, well, that this idea of the, the age of the arahants is over, we shouldn't meditate. Um, that you should learn Pali and uh, and study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures. He thought this is totally missing the point. Everything in the scriptures that we're studying and learning the Pali for is telling us you meditate, <laughs> go to the forest, meditate. And so, I think he was only about four or five vasa. He he left Bangkok and went back uh, to the south, and basically just sort of went out and and um, into the into the forest and set up uh, on his own with a tiny little shack and. At, at, um, at uh, BIA, the the, uh, the Ajahn Buddhadasa place in Bangkok, they've got a, a replica of his original kuti, which is like a kind of chicken coop, and a small chicken coop. I mean, it's very, very modest. <laughs> that uh, there was his original kuti, and uh, and uh, so that he um, he didn't really have a teacher other than the suttas. But in exactly the same way, you know, he, he reading the, the word of the Buddha and being guided by that, he he had come to that conclusion. This idea that you know that enlightenment is impossible, the age of the arahants is over, is like, it's ridiculous. It's like there's nothing to substantiate that, and it's, it's a foolish, wrong view. So both from the northeast with the the um, Lumpur Man's lineage, and then the influence that eventually had on Central Thailand in the from the, the the late 60s and 70s, and then coming up from from the south, from, from Ajahn Buddhadasa, and then his associate, uh, Lumpur Panyananda, who was, who was um, first in Chiang Mai, well, he was with Ajahn Buddhadasa in the south, and then was in Chiang Mai, and then eventually set up near Bangkok. Um, then their voice became very influential. The more, Ajahn Buddhadasa was publishing a lot, and then, uh, and then Lumpur Panyananda was, was very prominent speaking on the radio, and... Uh, and uh, giving very popular talks uh, in in the Bangkok area, so that so both of them and the people really could respect those voices that they were made a lot of sense. They could qualify everything that they said, and um, they they could began to become more and more understood that it was a superstition that uh, held people back, and that that so that 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 view was. Um, uh, quite deliberately uh, put forward in, from the, the, the Dhamma reforms, because also the, they had a lot of power. And in, in that Kamala Tiavanit um, book, um, Forest Recollections, she talks a lot about the, the Sangha Act of 1902. It was, to, it was also to do with unifying Thailand, which up until the first part of the colonial period, like with the French, the French in in Vietnam and, and Cambodia and Laos and on the one side, and the British in Burma and India, the Thailand was squished between the two. So there was a strong effort to try and unify Thailand because there was kind of a lot of separate kingdoms, separate principalities. So 
that King Chulalongkorn, uh, King Mongkut, King Chulalongkorn did a lot to try and unify Thailand as a single nation. <coughs> and then the Sangha Act of 1902 was part of unifying the country so that they, the, 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 the Sangha authorities in Bangkok were given a huge amount of power. So they basically uh, sent out um, their sort of... Uh, um, their, their standards to be adopted all over the, the, the unified country and that, that was sort of like a deliberate policy okay these are the new standards this is the, the liturgy this is in the, the Thai script you're not allowed to use your local scripts you're not allowed to use your local texts you have to use the standardized forms coming from Bangkok so it was the, the intention was to unify and to protect but it, it, uh, it, it also um, knocked out a lot of the local traditions and also then this, this view that meditation is bad and the age of the Arahants is over was part of the package. So then when people like uh, Ajahn Man came along, Ajahn Buddhadasa and, uh, and the, the forest uh, tradition people, that they were going very much counter to that. And um, to say the age of the Arahants is not over <laughs> and meditation is really important. And also that lay people can meditate too because part of it was that not only, you know, not only should monastics not meditate, but definitely lay people shouldn't meditate at all. And then, from about the 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 thirties, forties, and fifties, then it became more and more the influence of those great ajans that lay people could and should meditate too. And then, and then after the fifties, then uh, and the influence uh, from Burma um, of lay meditation practices in in Burma, then that that was brought in. To Thailand after the the the, the sixth council in in uh, Rangoon, and so then it became both meditation is a good idea not just for the monastics but for lay people as well, and the age of enlightenment is not is not finished. Okay, so we'll leave it there for today.